Hello. I have been a devotee of two-wheel transport for as long as my memory serves, and by the age of three was quite adept on my little pushbike. As I grew older, I took to the powered variation and enjoyed the wind in my face, minus the requirement to pump my legs up and down. Lo, did I fall in love with motorcycles. Thus far, I have never set foot or wheel on the Isle of Man, but when I am challenged condescendingly by my fellows with call yourself a biker and never been to the TT races, I reply with an air of not entirely mock superiority. Nope, but I've ridden Harley Davidson's around the States and Canada. Does that count? That usually stymies any further disparagement of my credentials and inevitably reminds me of the occasion when I was in the USA doing precisely that. It was some years ago now, but will I ever forget the spectacle, the welcome, the sound of ZZ Top at who knows how many decibels, and the hundreds of thousands of aficionados who had gathered from around the world with the single purpose of celebrating the birthday of what was for them and me one of the greatest motorcycle marks in history. Ah, yes, as Monsieur Chevalier famously sang, I remember it well. Fabulous. But one curious aspect about the USA that left his particular impression is their utter devotion to the American flag. It's something that every first visitor to the USA immediately notices. Everywhere, just everywhere, indoors and out, flies an American flag. It's part of the American fabric, if you'll excuse the pun. It unites in celebration and joy. It comforts in crisis and hurt. It is emblematic of the very spirit of the people. And it is treated with such reverence. Until recent times, been subject to a very strict code of etiquette that included only being flown between the hours of sunrise and sunset, never in darkness unless lit, and even then only on special occasions. It must be raised briskly, lowered ceremoniously, and never touch the ground. The shock of students disavowing this veneration by burning the flag during the Vietnam War led to a sense of national outrage. Yet even though Pandora's box was opened, the stars and stripes still defines America. And so, though it has not yet generated quite the same degree of general fervour, and admittedly in a different milieu that I don't believe will blur my point, the more recent incarnation of our very own black country flag has already helped further promulgate the notion of black countryness. This is surely no bad thing. Indeed, I proudly confess to the one that flies privately in my workshop, and which comforts me greatly that in this rugged Celtic borderland there lies a small haven in which I can feel at one with my roots whilst far from them. We can trace the origins of the Black Country flag to April 2012, when the Black Country Living Museum launched a competition encouraging local residents to develop a flag to celebrate the Diamond Jubilee of Elizabeth II and the hosting of the Olympic Games. The flag was subsequently a catalyst for the annual Black Country Day and Festival. An excellent start. And yet there is much, much more to this flag than simply offering a tangible totem that identifies the Black Country. And herein lies the crux. Where exactly is the black country that the flag is intended to denote? And where does the name originate? And indeed, why are either particularly important? The where is it part is easily, though imprecisely explained, 
And I will recall a broadcast I once undertook with three very distinguished guests, during which I swear I received four definitions. <laughs> Just ask anyone within shouting distance of Dudley Castle, and an opinion will be forthcoming. As for why our identity is so important, well, although the recognition of our flag, and since 2009 the inclusion of the black country on the Ordnance Survey map of the area, are huge steps in our defence. There is no room for complacency. Previous threats to the area being anonymised, possibly even lost as an entity, are amply documented. Well, that may well be my theme for another day. But the taxonomy of black country, the name our flag represents, why? How come? Well, there are a number of suggestions. Some exude more gravitas than others, which in turn may appeal by their whimsy. Allow me to provide just one example of each. In the 1860s, Elihu Burritt was American consul in Birmingham and his duties included reporting back to his taskmasters on the productive capacities, industrial character and natural resources of the area. He accrued his information by means of a series of walks around the region which he published as a book. Written in a style that now seems florid and winsome, his walks in the black country and his green borderland, first published in 1868, nevertheless still paints a lurid contemporary picture. The very first lines of the opening chapter set the scene. The black country, black by day and red by night, cannot be matched for vast and varied production by any other space of equal radius on the globe. It is a section of titanic industry, kept in murky perspiration by a set of tubal canes and Vulcans, week in, week out, and often seven days to the week. Gosh. The black country flag, with its red, white and black background and motif of chain links and glass cone, is based on Burritt's graphic illusions. Although there are historical references to the region that offer inferences, the term may have existed well before the Industrial Revolution, with our crops of coal scar in the landscape, for example. Burritt's work is one of the earliest that actually articulates the black country in writing, and thus we can be assured that the area was in fact already known as such by the mid-19th century. Yet there is another explanation that predates Burritt by several decades, and which, though not as precise in its assertion, is nonetheless a charming narrative and one that, coincidentally, has its roots not far from my borderland home. In 1832, a young lady was on her way to Powys Castle as part of an educational tour around the country when she was given a diary by her mother so she could record her experiences. The exercise became a habit, and the young girl continued to maintain a diary, written in black ink, right up to her death in 1901. Her early entries, during which time she was perhaps at her most uh, youthfully impressionable, reveal thoughts of her visit to the dark region when, in the year she received her first diary, she noted, The men, women, children, country and houses are all black. But I cannot by any description give an idea of its strange and extraordinary appearance. The country is very desolate everywhere. There are coals about and the grass is quite blasted and black. I just now see an extraordinary building flaming with fire. Uh, but there were heartening glimpses of uh, this young lady's humanity as she comments on a trait of which black country folk are still justifiably proud. We have changed horses at Wolverhampton, a large and dirty town, 
but we were received with great friendliness. Revisiting the area 20 years later, she recorded, One sees nothing but chimneys, flaming furnaces and wretched cottages. You have but a faint impression of the life of which a third of a million of my poor subjects are forced to lead. It makes me sad. The mother in this charming tale was the Duchess of Kent, and her young daughter went on to define an English era. Her name? Well, it was, of course, Victoria. Enjoy your black country, and do join me again soon for more Tales from the Barn.